Appreciate all those who are in the parking lot, those of you that are watching from home on your tablets or devices or computers or phones or whatever you're watching on, and everybody that's here tonight as well in the auditorium. We have for the past um, two months been studying from the book of Genesis. We progressed through the first half of chapter 30 last week. Our goal tonight is to get through the second half of 30 and then get all the way through 34, which is a task that will be uh, attainable and we'll do just fine in getting through all of our material. Appreciate all the good uh, feedback that you've given, the good questions that you guys come up with, the thoughts that you have, uh, whether they be expressed in the class setting or afterwards. Um, And some of you have said it's led to good discussions in your cars on the way home, and that's always good. It's always good when you're on the way home, you're talking with your family about whatever the class was and whatever the issues were that came up or the questions that that arose. So let's go ahead and open to chapter 30. We're going to look at verses 25 through 43. Before we do so, let's take a moment and pray together. Father God, thank you for the rich blessings that come as a result of you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your word, which has been delivered so that we can learn from it. We can read things that encourage us and that excite us. We can read things that sometimes uh, dissuade us from doing wrong and being surrounded by people who would otherwise uh, influence us in a poor way, as we'll see in our study tonight. Bless all those who are studying. We thank you, Father, for all of our teachers. We thank you for our parents. We thank you for the richness that comes through you and your word. And we pray that's blessings on us tonight. Be with those who are in need of your help and those who are struggling. In Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, we finished last week by looking at, just as a real quick 30-second recap, by looking at the first half of chapter 30, and we looked particularly at the sons of um, Jacob, and we looked at their names, we looked at their meanings, we looked at their respective mothers, And we did not make reference to that Jacob also has a daughter. Her name is, we'll talk about her tonight, Dinah, right? D-I-N-A-H. And we'll talk about Dinah when we get into chapter 34. But let's get right into the text here in chapter 30. We're going to do some reading mostly in 31, 32, and 34. We'll we'll probably breeze through 32 um, and chapter 30. But just make a couple observations about chapter 30 is that Jacob here is seeking to leave Laban. Uh, Remember that he's been serving Laban now for what, 14 years? And the seven plus the seven. And he says, it's time for me to leave, to go set out on my own. The presumable thing being that now that I'm married to Rachel, the one who he was really after in the first place, that he has his family intact and kind of wants to set out on his own. In order to do so, though, there has to be a separation of the flocks, that they have a lot of animals, and it is very clear to Jacob and very clear to Laban that Laban has been richly blessed because of God's providing for Laban by way of Jacob. And so Jacob has a choice uh, of what animals to remove for himself, and in, in short, what were, what were the distinguishing characteristics of the animals that Jacob says, 
I'll take this for me and for my family. And just a, a, a word or two. Spotted, speckled, some versions say. Um, striped, even some uh, translations say. And th- not only do we look at that sometimes as being less than perfect animals, but also that these would have been fewer in number because those kinds of animals were not as prevalent as the nicer looking or more appropriate on the outside looking animals. So you could make the argument here, and I, and I would make the argument that Jacob here is seemingly making a, a wise choice where he is showing his dependence and his trust in the Lord rather than in the trust in himself. In many ways, similar to his grandfather, who when he had a similar situation, not so much in choosing which animals, but choosing which land, you remember that Jacob's grandfather Abraham, or at the time Abram, said to Lot, you choose whatever ground you want, I'll go to the opposite. Lot chose the good land uh, on the outside good land, got himself into some hot water uh, later because of his proximity to Sodom. But let's read verses 41 through 43 here, where we see that um, uh, God clearly blesses Jacob. came to pass whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods. Hopefully you had a chance to read through that or you're, you're familiar with that from previous studies. That the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous, had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. In short, Jacob here makes a, a very wise investment and is blessed richly and is able to leave Laban. However, a quiet or a peaceful leaving of Laban is not going to transpire because Laban's sons are going to get involved, which is what chapter 31 starts with, when they become uh, jealous, envious, uh, bothered by the fact that they, they feel like, it seems like they feel like they're being slighted by Jacob. All right? Anything else on chapter 30 from last week or from what we've talked about in our first four or five minutes here? All right, let's get into brand new material then tonight. Chapter 31, and the way I want to do chapter 31 is I want to read about 12 verses uh, and just progress through the text and tell the story of the text of Jacob fleeing from Laban uh, and then eventually a covenant relationship or an, an agreement that transpires between Jacob and Laban. So the Lord instructs Jacob to leave Laban here. Uh, Let's look at the first couple of verses here. Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all this wealth. And Jacob, notice what it says here, and the New King James says, saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Uh, Then the Lord said to Jacob, here's where God steps in and says, here's what I want you to do. Return to the land of your fathers, to your family, and I will be with you. So God here says, go back to your land, go to a place or to a different place away from Laban and kind of strike out on your own. Drop down to verse 7. Your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. Now, 
probably this is a little bit of exaggeration or hyperbole that Jacob is using in talking to uh, Leah or talking to Rachel. And he says to them, your dad has, has tricked me. Your dad has changed my wages all these different times. A million times he's done this to me. And as a result, he did not, uh, but God did not allow him to hurt me. Verse 8, if he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. If he said the streak shall be your wages, all the flocks bore streak. So notice what verse 9, a key verse and an early application for us is verse 9, is where he says, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So Jacob gets uh, kind of a, a, a bad rap in some ways because of the deceit that he played with uh, Isaac and um, Esau. And so we, we, we judge him accordingly. At the same time, Jacob here is seeming to really put the focus where the focus needs to be. And an early application for us is that God blesses us and he's the one that deserves the credit when God blesses us. And Jacob could have easily said, you know what? It's because of my success. It's because of my uh, husbandry. That's the fancy word for taking care of animals, right? But no, he says it's because God has blessed me, has taken away the livestock of your father, and given them to me. So I thought that was interesting to make sure that we give Jacob some credit for that. Now, this puts Rachel and Leah in a kind of a difficult spot because they're married to Jacob, but yet they have an allegiance, a natural kind of allegiance to their father, uh, to, to this figure Laban. And so drop down to verses 14 through 15 through 16. Let's read 14 through 16. It says, Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For as he has sold us and also completely consumed our money for all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then whatever God has said to you, do it. So it, if you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, it seems to me that Rachel and Leah here are seemingly recognizing that Laban has been a little bit uh, less than above board with the way that he has conducted himself. We've talked now for two weeks about Laban and have suggested that he was a little bit um, or maybe a lot interested in physical things, in jewelry, in money, in large flocks, that these are the kinds of things that he was attracted to. And so that maybe he's consumed these things, which has now put Rachel and Leah in a spot where like, you know what, there's not much left for us at home anyway. Why would we uh, balk at the idea of leaving with you our husband? Then Rachel does something. What does Rachel do? Or, well, she's already done it, but we, we read about it here in the next three or four verses. She steals the family idols. Now, we know that idolatry was not a part of what God's people were supposed to be doing. So they didn't come from Jacob. Where would they have come from? They would have come from Laban, right? And from Laban's household. So it's interesting here that in verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. So last week we kind of juxtaposed the difference between Leah and Rachel. And we suggested 
that Leah may have a little bit more spiritual depth based on the way she names her children, for example. Why did Leah not go after the idols? Why did Rachel go after the idols? Apparently, she was more attuned to that thing than was Leah on this particular occasion, on on any particular occasion. But Rachel steals the household idols. Um, Verse 22, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. He took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban, the Syrian, in a dream by night and said, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So then, verses 25 through about verse 30, we won't read all those verses, Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched his mount, pitched in the mountains of Gilead. Laban then says, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword? Now, you can ask that question in a couple of different tones. You could ask it as a very matter-of-fact question. You could ask it kind of as a... Um, a smart aleck kind of way. You could ask it in an indignant way. I don't know exactly the phrase. It's, trying to, it's like write, reading a text message. Um, you can take it a couple different ways. But uh, he says, you stole away secretly, verse 27. Um, he says, verse 27, for I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. You could put a question mark next to that and say, oh, I wonder if he really would have conducted himself quite that way. But either way, he didn't allow me to kiss my sons and daughters. Now you've done foolishly. Uh, Verse 30, you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? I thought that was interesting. Why did you steal my gods? So back in verse 19, the reference is, is to idols. Here in verse 30, you stole my gods. Uh, I wonder if Laban is hearing himself. You stole my gods. Just doesn't make sense, does it? Um, But when you associate yourself with foreign cultures, which God has clearly said from the outset, I don't want you doing, when you intermarry with other people, because after all, Laban is a relative of Abraham and Sarah himself, right? Uh, And Rebecca, uh, of course, as well. So they all have a relationship with each other. Laban should have been the example setter in teaching Rachel and Leah about the worship of the true God, Jehovah. But, of course, that wasn't the case. So what does Laban do about the idols? He does this exhaustive search. He starts going through and opening suitcases, opening satchel bags. He's going through boxes. He is searching everywhere for them. And what does Jacob say, unbeknownst to him, that Rachel, his favorite, has uh, the idols? What does Jacob say about the person with whom those idols are found? Kill him. So this is not the first time nor the last time in the Bible where you have these kind of rash statements. Whoever you find, let that person be put to death, be stoned, be killed, whatever the case may be. Verse 32 Whoever you find, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live in the presence of our brethren. Identify what I have of yours and take it with you, for Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So, verses 34, Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. 
And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idol. So now uh, she's either lying or being deceptive or, or both, which are one and the same. Um, maybe she, maybe this, maybe there was a true statement in verse 35. We don't know. Um, but the idea is, is you can't find them because you're not going to search where I'm saying it's off limits. And it's just, you, you begin to wonder about the character of Rachel here in the way that she's conducted herself. Um, and I pointed that out now two or three times because I'm not sure that I'd ever really thought about that before until recently in studying Genesis. So Jacob then, uh, verse 36 the Bible, the New King James says in verse 36, it says that he was angry. And someone pointed out that this was probably um, year after year after year, pent up frustration and anger and like a boiling pot. It just kind of spewed over and, and Jacob kind of lost it. And he just flips out. And he says in verse 36, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that it may judge between us both. These 20 years, I said 14, but 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried their young. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of you. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes on and on and on and on he goes saying who are you to question me to question my integrity that i would steal something from you uh and so jacob confronts him he says verse 42 unless the god of my father the god of abraham and the fear of isaac had been with me surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed god has seen after my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night so very clearly, Jacob is upset. And again, the word that is used in verse 36 is that Jacob was angry. And so in the final um, uh, 11, 12, 13 verses here, that last kind of long paragraph of chapter 31 that we'll outline, and then we'll move to chapter 32, is this relationship or this covenant, this peace between Jacob and Laban. And you got to give Jacob some credit here in the final, I guess, I said 12, 13 verses. In the final 13 verses, Jacob is very calm. Uh, he's willing to say, you know what? Let bygones be bygones. Let's move on to the future. Um, and sometimes we just have to agree to disagree, and things seem to calm down. And then Laban is pretty much gone from the picture, and we move on to a different paragraph here. Uh, Brother Nathan over here. I'll let uh, Bill get to him, and then we're going to get into chapter 32 here and um, just a second. Yeah, Brother Nathan. Uh, I think here you see Jacob, in a sense, making this deal with him or bargain or, you know, this, um, you know, smoothing things over with him. But in all essence, Laban really didn't have a choice because God had spoken to Laban and said, you don't, Good point. you don't do anything cross, you don't cross Jacob. Good point. And, you know, going back to the, you know, you had changed my labor ten times. I think it actually probably was ten times. I mean, because mm -hmm. Jacob mentions it again in verse 41. That's a good point. Laban. Verse 41. And when you, mm -hmm. all those things you just read, the different things that happened to Jacob throughout the 
throughout his 20 years, there's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't doubt the aspect of Laban doing things and changing certain things within Jacob's, you know, time with him that many times. That's really good. And so we usually save our applications for the end, but let's go ahead and talk about that big application that Nathan brings up here. I wrote in my notes here, nothing gets in the way of God's plans. And there's nothing that Laban's going to be able to do to stop this progression of Jacob being blessed as, as richly as he is. Excellent. Okay, let's go ahead to chapter 32. And we'll spend a little bit less time on chapter 32 and 33, and then we'll end with 34 tonight. 32 uh, is Esau coming to meet Jacob. What was the last interaction between Esau and Jacob? Yeah, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. And uh, going back to chapter 27, verse 45, an interesting statement that is made is, remember that Rebekah had told her favorite um, Jacob, when his fear subsides, I'll let you know, in so many words, right? Did Rebekah ever come to, um, at least recorded, to Jacob and tell him that? No. So the next time he sees Esau, he's like, oh boy, this is not going to be good. Because um, time has passed, and, you know... Time erases most, but not all, hurt. And so he's, he's concerned about that. So Jacob fears Esau, and he develops a strategy, so to speak. Verse 6, we came to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Jacob was greatly afraid, verse 7, and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. So he's got this strategy that, well, if he attacks half, half of my people, because he's got a lot of people, a lot of servants, his family is growing, uh, a lot of animals uh, that are under the care of his servants and his people. He says, I'll divide it into two. Uh, presumably, if he destroys one, at least he won't take everything. So I'm going to diversify. This is one of the first uh, occasions of diversifying one's assets or wealth. Uh, as recorded in scripture. What does Jacob do? He prays. And let's read that prayer, verses 9 through 12. Someone pointed out, uh, had made a comment that this really kind of serves as a nice model prayer. And I, every time I say that, I think I'm going to do a sermon uh, just on this, and I've yet to do it, but one day maybe. But let's read verses 9 through 12. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitudes. So in there, there's praise of God. There's recognition of past promises. There's a assurance of future promises. Uh, there's a lot of different ingredients of good, healthy prayer just in those uh, four verses there where he prays. And then what does he do? Uh, the Bible tells us that Jacob prepares offerings of peace for his brother. Um, 
verse 17, he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? You shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So this meeting is kind of preceded by all of this drama and nervousness and prayerfulness and preparation on the part of Jacob. The actual meeting isn't until chapter 33, but you have a section of 11 verses that gets inserted before he meets Esau. And if you look at it from this perspective, in some ways you have a slightly timid, not slightly, a a timid Jacob in the early part of chapter 32. Once you get to chapter 33, Jacob is bolder. He's more courageous to go back to our Sunday evening sermon. And it seems like the catalyst or the thing that changed that was the events of chapter 32, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And that, of course, is the most familiar part of of the text. I want to actually read that text. I'll read it very quickly here. Then I want us to come back and make a couple of observations or ask the question. He arose that night and took his two wives, two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed over the ford to Jabbok. He took them, by the way, Jabbok, uh, if I remember correctly, I don't have it in my Bible and I didn't write it down. I think it means wrestling. I think it means a struggle. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's what that means. So the idea being that the the river was named after the event that would transpire there. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent them what oh, sent over what he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. As he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that in the muscle that shrank. So the question that we could spend the rest of our time on, and this would be, I, I suppose, a very simple title to a sermon that one could preach or a forty-five minute study, is why did Jacob and the man wrestle? Uh, how do we know that it's more than just a man? And there's a couple ways that we know that. One, Jacob recognizes, I wrestled with God and have prevailed. This, this man gave him a blessing, something that was very spiritual. Uh, a name change like this is big. And we know the significance of the children of Israel, uh, the children of Jacob. What does Hosea tell us? Maybe this is guess what I'm thinking. But Hosea actually makes reference uh, to... Um, an angel uh, of God with whom he wrestled. I think it's Hosea 12, verse 4. I don't know if I wrote it down or not. I didn't. Uh, But in Hosea, 
uh, I'm pretty sure it's chapter 12. There's, yeah, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, you have a recounting of this event by the prophet Hosea where he makes reference to this. So let me suggest, why did Jacob and God wrestle? Um, because we don't have 45 minutes, we have 45 seconds. Uh, let me share with you three possibilities or three reasons. One is it's an exhibit of God's mercy. Uh, it's a way of God showing his graciousness to his people, and certainly his mercifulness to Jacob. Two, some have suggested, I think there's something to be said for this, that it's an illustration of a dependence on God. Um, and the idea that I'm going to now limp. You know, presumably, Jacob's going to limp for the rest of his life because of this. And that would be a pretty miserable thing. I would suspect. And then three, it's a symbolic occasion for Israel or the name concept to be introduced as well. Um, so those are three possible reasons. Anything else? Like we could spend a lot of time on that, but we've got 16 minutes left. Anything else on that? Because I know we're, we're, we're probably familiar with this text because we studied it so much. All right. Let's go ahead then to chapter 33 because I do want to save some time for 34. Um, and some observations and points. Jacob here meets Esau. Notice here that Jacob is a little bit bolder. And how does Esau receive Jacob? Very favorably, very graciously, very mercifully. I use the word gracious. Esau uh, is gracious. Um, And he goes out and he kisses him. And it's this reunion that you, we were hoping for, but we weren't sure it was actually going to happen that way. Verse 4 says, Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. So I'm not sure that we could ask for a better um, conclusion to this story. There's more to be said about that. But um, real quickly here, verses 10 and 11, Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present. Because he says, here, have a present. You know, what do we, especially, especially if you have to deliver bad news to someone, here, have a present first. You know, don't kill me. Um, he says, please accept it. Verse 11, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Uh, Jacob saw the face of God in Esau. What a, what a beautiful thing. If someone were to say, I see God's face in you. And understanding that we're not talking about that in a, in a literal way, in an inappropriate way, but the idea, I, I, see, I see godliness in you. That's a beautiful thing to say about someone. That was the case here. Um, and then at the end of chapter 33, uh, Jacob comes to Canaan, um, which seems to be an additional sign of Jacob's faith and of God's future planning or providing. Uh, when it says he came safely to the city of Shechem. Now, that's going to land some problems, chapter 34, which we'll get to here in just a minute or so. But uh, anything else on 33 before we get to 34? All right, I know we breezed through that. All right, Um, let's spend the rest of our time in 34. We've got a little less than 15 minutes left. Uh, 34 is 31 verses, and... um, it's, it's cringeworthy, 
It's one of those places in the Old Testament where you read and you're like, did that just happen? But what happened? That's the question because there's different ways of looking at it. Let's look at the first couple of verses here and we can pick out a couple of things that even if we can't all agree, because we may not all agree on chapter 34, we can agree on some big things, including a big application. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. So just kind of put a, a little dot there in your head. There may be something to be said about her going to see the daughters of the land. Compare that to verse 31. Should he treat our sister like a harlot? Um, so you, when you book in 34, verses 1 through 31, was she doing something she should not have been doing with the people of the land is, is kind of the first question that transpires. When Shechem, or Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Now, that's the New King James Version. We'll come back and look at an alternative version in just a moment. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. And so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. His sons were with the livestock in the field. Jacob held his peace. Eventually, the sons find out. When they find out, verse 7, they are grieved. They are very angry. All right, so let's talk about Dinah for just uh, a couple of moments here. Question number one is, um, what was she doing in verse 1? Anybody have a footnote or you studied that when, where it says in verse 1, she went out to see the daughters of the land. Anybody have a study of that? Because I, I don't know exactly what that means. I have my suspicion. Um, generally speaking, when reference is made to sons of the land or daughters of the land, it's the idea of being um, associated with ungodly or worldly people. And that may be the case here. Um, so what was she doing? That's one of the first questions there. Then verse 2, um, the New King James says, violated her. Uh, the New American Standard says, lay by force. The NIV says, if I'm, if I, if I'm correct, if I'm, if I'm reading from the wrong version or something, let me know. It says he raped her. And then the ESV says he humiliated her. Anybody have a different translation from one of those four? Those are probably the four big ones that come up with. Okay. So verse 7, Dinah's brothers react, and they are very angry for what has happened. And so they create a plan of vengeance or of execution or of... Uh, uh, revenge, so to speak. What is their plan? And it's a plan that has to develop over the course of the next few verses. But Okay. So, all right, if you want to have a relationship with our family, then you need to be like our family. And so verses 13 and following, the plan is that you need to be circumcised as well. What ends up happening, though, over the next 10 verses? 
Day three, what do they do? Say again. They slaughter them. On the day in which they would have been in the most pain uh, possible. Um, So the execution of Let's read verses 13 and then we'll pick up a couple verses. Verse 13. um, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor. By the way, which sons are we talking about here? We're talking about the two first sons, right? Right, am I correct? No, I'm sorry. I was thinking about something. I'm thinking about a different passage here. Um, Simeon and Levi, yeah. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. Notice that the verse 13, New King James says, spoke deceitfully. But on this condition, we will consent to you if you will become as we are if every male of you is circumcised. Verse 15. Um, Drop down to verse 21. These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them to our daughters. So the idea, okay, we can work with this. Interesting that uh, it's kind of a tall task to ask, uh, but they're willing to go through with it. So in verse 25, it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that, here we go, I knew knew I'd seen it somewhere. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they are singled out. Each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Incidentally, in verse 26, um, it says they took Dinah from Shechem's house. Were they rescuing Dinah? Were they taking Dinah? It depends on the, the way in which you read this particular text. So, that being said, how does Jacob react to this in verse 30? When this is all said and done. He's, he's bothered by the whole thing, right? The New King James uses the word... Uh, obnoxious. Says, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. So, um, thought that was kind of interesting to think about as well. Um, let me just put this up here because I don't know the answer to it. We'll take comments here in our final you know, four or five minutes here if you want. But in short, uh, there is some debate on whether or not she was, depending on the version you're reading from, whether she was raped, what kind of violation was there? Was the violation simply that they married outside the family? Was she playing the role of a harlot? Um, thoughts on that? And I know that we don't have a lot of time to get into that. I know it's kind of a loaded question because it begs a lot of different, um, pulls at our heartstrings as well. But I, I, I don't know exactly what's happening here. I've, I've seen arguments on both sides of the issue where people say, oh, absolutely, this was the case, and some say, no, absolutely, it was not the case. But thoughts? I don't know. Laying that on you, kind of tough, right? What? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's go uh, Bill and then Linda, or Linda, then Bill. necessarily go to Dinah herself on this kind of topic, but rather that I mean, we don't hear anything from Jacob himself. Correct. He lets the, the boys do out all of the... Handle the dirty the, work. The handling, yeah. 
And, I mean, we don't hear from him at all. He keeps silent until they come in, and they find out. And then we don't hear from him until after they have done their dirty work. Good point. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? There are some. There, are, it's, it's okay to have some question marks because I hope it's okay to have some question marks because I have question marks, and I don't know all the answers. Uh, Brother Bill. Yeah, I mean, you were you were looking for uh, thoughts. I mean, I was just reacting to how the, the guys reacting as a as a guy who has a younger sister. I mean, I know what I, I know what I think. Um, sure, it had to be something that had to be violating or something that done wrong to her. Correct. Uh, and all, and, I, and I, I can I can what's the word I'm looking for. I can empathize with them a little bit. I'm not saying what they did is right, but I can see um, what they did as a response to her being violated rather than, rather than playing the harlot. But I was thinking similarly to Linda, uh, what she said, and you don't hear from Jacob until his reputation is at stake. He's on the line. Me, is right. at stake. So why, why does he take that long? Why does he not speak to Dinah, to the circumcision? Why is it, oh, now you guys have gotten me and my name in trouble? Kind, mm-hmm. of, uh, kind of selfish. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Um, there was something else I was going to say. What was it here? Going back to verse 1 or 2. Um, oh, we'll come back to it if we get to it. Let's go ahead and close with this because we've only got three minutes left here. Um, one of the applications that Nathan brought out that I wish I could real-time add-up here to our observations and lessons is that nothing gets in the way of God's plan. Nothing. Uh, Let me go through these four. And these four come directly from what we've talked about tonight. Number one, putting our trust in the Lord always pays off. That was the case in chapter 30, verses 25 to the end of the chapter, and the case now. Uh, Two, idolatry is, should, should say, is to be left behind once we become followers of God. There's no excuse for idolatry. And David talked about it um, on Sunday where even um, being covetousness, covetousness is, is idolatry. Um, that just putting anything in front of God is already idolatry and therefore wrong. Three, God is merciful. We depend on him alone. Uh, Much like Jacob received the mercy from Esau, we receive mercy from God. And when we have had a confrontation with God, have disobeyed God, when we have sinned against God, missed the mark like we talked about Sunday morning, and we go back to God, he's very much like Esau in verse 4 of chapter 33. He runs out, meets us, kisses us, and says, as Luke 15 talks about, I now accept you back based on our repentance. And then number four, um, going, I, I know what I was going to say, is this application that putting ourselves in the wrong places provides opportunity for wrong things to occur. If nothing else, it seems, it seems to me, at least in, in, in my observation of chapter 34, if, if nothing else, Dinah got herself in the wrong spot and surrounded herself with the wrong people. Now, do not misquote me. I'm not suggesting that if something, if she was violated in a in a violent uh, way, that's that's not. You can't say, well, that's that's not that's her fault. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when we put ourselves in positions where we are surrounded by worldly people, the likelihood of someone doing something bad to us 
or us choosing to get involved into something uh, that is bad or not worthwhile goes up dramatically. Anything else in our final 60 seconds? Yeah, Brother Bill. I'd say one thing about your third comment up there. I mean, regardless of of the situation specifically in chapter 34, I think it, it highlights that God, we're dependent on God for our salvation in, in this way. God didn't find like a purebred line of top-notch people to bring, excuse me, to bring Jesus through. I mean, Jacob is messed up. You know, his, his family's messed up and uh, his kids are messed up, but, but God is, is able to, um, to use that, that man and, and use, even use this situation to continue the line and the promise that he had made to Abraham. Absolutely. So it's, 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 a, it's another case where God's not reliant on us being perfect and not having the right step. We're dependent on him even in our weakness. And we've seen Jacob a week a couple of times here. Well said. And Brother Nathan over here, while you're going, Brother Nathan here, um, that should blend well with, I think the children tonight are studying David and Bathsheba. Anybody know for sure if they're studying that tonight? Okay. I, I think they're studying David, either David and Bathsheba this week or next week. But that will make for a great segue to your conversation. Here you have David, this man after God's own heart, who makes these mistakes, sins, uh, but yet God forgives him. Kind of goes well with what you said, Bill. Yeah, Brother Nathan. I was just thinking when you was, in a sense, comparing the fighting with God to the sin and stuff a few moments ago. When we fight against God, we don't come away unscathed. Correct. Jacob fought, wrestled with God, he got away with the, a That's limp. A good point. You know, I mean, we, you don't walk away without a scratch. You know, when, and when we sin or we fail to do God's will, it's seen in our life and our life is affected. Right. And we're not the same again. Yeah. And we wouldn't want to be the same. We want to be improved, improved moving forward, right? All right, we'll go ahead and pause there. Appreciate everyone's thoughts very, very much, especially with the difficult subject tonight.